Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. I'm going to turn to John chapter 6 for our scripture text. John chapter 6, verses 41 to 44, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. John 6, 41 to 44. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have this means of knowing you, and that the Spirit can come into our hearts and our minds and illumine them and illumine the word so that we truly have the right understanding of it. And we pray that you would work through your spirit, that this word would would penetrate hard hearts, Uh, Father, that it would lead us to repentance, that it would lead us to trust in you, and that we would be drawn to Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be seated. I don't know, Mary's not here, so it's hard to preach today. She said she wasn't going to be here, and she said she felt bad about it. (laughs) But she wanted to hear her son preach, and I was like, okay, well, that's legit. Go hear your son preach. But um, there are a lot of other people traveling this morning as well, and some sickness and a few families, so... um, Be praying for people who are in motion, who are not feeling well, and... And, uh, but let's, uh, let's give attention now to God's Word. At some point in this text in chapter 6, we move from Jesus interacting with that crowd that we've, we've been with for the, a number of weeks in the past. And um, that crowd that was fed by him miraculously uh, in, the, in the desert and uh, the feeding of the 5,000 and we move toward him addressing a completely different crowd of, of people, and that would be the leaders of the, the synagogue in Capernaum. And I think this verse marks that change, where, where the audience changes. Notice in verse 59, he says that he taught these things in the synagogue of Capernaum. And so I think this verse marks that change of audience. He's moved from interacting with the people who followed him for food to uh, the leaders of the synagogue, those who had um, spiritual oversight of the people. He's gone from preaching to hungry masses to preaching to, to religious leaders. Nonetheless, verse 41 still still attributes this rejection of Jesus to the Jews as a people. Do you see that? Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him. A lot of people have analyzed the Gospel of Matthew, and, or Gospel of John, and have noticed that he is always picking on the Jews. Uh, some people even say that the Gospel of John is anti-Semitic, which is really ironic, right? John was a Jew. And Jesus was, and, and, and so, but, but it's a language trick here. And so in modern translations of the Bibles at this verse, you know what they do? They just add a, a word. They just say, therefore, the Jewish leaders were grumbling about him, right? And, and so it's, there's a lot of meaning that's changed with that one thing, right? John lays, lays the indictment at the feet of the unbelieving Jews. Now, if it is just the Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders, as representative heads, do 
you know, stand in for the whole. But, but pay attention to your, your Bible translations. The New American Standard Bible, 1995, that we use, uh, helpfully puts editorial words that are added just for meaning in italics, so you know that that's going to happen. The New King James Version does the same thing. It italicizes things that are needed for meaning, but aren't there in the original. Pay attention to those things. But a lot of translations don't do that, and so you're dependent upon the orthodoxy of the editors for whether or not you're getting the, the straight dope, right? Whether or not you're getting the, the, the true word of God. And so here, and, and this is one of the areas where a very um, politically correct cowardly Bible translators attempt to remove the Word of God and soften it so that it's more palatable. But you don't ever want a scripture like that. You want what was inspired. You want to get as close to that inspired Word as possible. And so politically correct translations of the scriptures are about as wicked as something could be to soften God's word to make it more palatable and in the process, removing the word of God from those that you're delivering it to. I don't think there's anything worse. The last chapter of the Bible has something to say about that. But notice, verse 41 attributes this rejection of, the, of Jesus to the Jews as a people. As the leaders go, so go the people. What were these synagogue officials doing? What were they doing? They're grumbling. They're grumbling about Jesus, which as you know from the Old Testament reading is a besetting sin of the Jews. It's a besetting sin of the Israelites to grumble and complain. They're masters at it. They have perfected grumbling and complaining. Uh, the Greek word for grumbling is onomatopoetic. The, the verb is gagudzo. Apparently, to a Jew, that sounds like murmuring or muttering, gagudzo. And so, I mean, if, if Israel has made, uh, has perfected the art of grumbling and complaining, then what have we done as a culture? Or what has each of us as individuals done? I mean, we get together to have parties just so we can complain to one another about how bad life is. Eh, come on over, we'll complain about our bosses. It'll be great. You know, I mean, we've just institutionalized and ritualized grumbling and complaining. Ironically, what was it the Israelites grumbled about first in the wilderness when we read read it? Uh, where we read about it in Exodus. What do they grumble and complain about first? You remember. What's that? Um, they're not far removed from Egypt, right? They've just come out of Egypt, and they've just seen miracle after miracle. They've seen Egypt laid waste by the power of God, right? Just decimate this, this, amazing, uh, this amazing nation, and they grumble and complain against Moses and against God. And here's what it says. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Why uh, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate our bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I mean, this is, remember, we've just, the feeding of the 5,000 has just happened. That, that's still percolating through them. Now, what does God do for them in response to their grumbling and complaining? Does he send a plague among them and lightning and wild animals and beasts and take them off the land? No, not yet. 
He sends them manna. He miraculously feeds them. Right? We see he gives them manna. He gives them this food that they don't even have to work for. Right? It just, it is supplied to them. It's ready to eat. What does it taste like? Like honey and coriander? Something like that? It's even sweet. That's great. Right? Now, we see the bread of heaven. They have the very bread of heaven, the spiritual bread before them, and they complain at his presence. They would eventually complain. The Israelites would complain about the manna, right? Be tired of that. And God would stuff meat in their mouths so it came out their nostrils. Right? But these... They complain now, back in John, they're complaining about the presence of the bread of life. These Jews are so hungry. They're so hungry because they've pursued righteousness by their own works. And it's left them starving. And Jesus stands before them, offering them the bread of heaven by faith. And they just grumble and complain. They just murmur. The text says that they grumbled because Jesus said that he was the bread that came down out of heaven. That's, that's what got stuck, they got stuck on. Uh, are they being nostalgic, perhaps? They're like, bread of heaven? Let me tell you about some bread of heaven. You know, Moses in the wilderness. And we've gone through that, right? We saw before they like what Moses did for their fathers. They like that physical bread, right? And they, they like... They like physical bread, but it's more than just nostalgia that leads them to despise Jesus for saying that he's better bread, right? They are unimpressed with Jesus. They're unimpressed. And how do I know that? Well, it's what they say next. Look at what they say. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say? I have come down out of heaven. I mean, they're saying from heaven, hardly. He's, he's just the son of, 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 you know, of Joseph and Mary, that, that unimpressive couple, right? That lower class couple, that unimpressive couple, that, that, uh, that, that carpenter family. What are these, now what are these Jews doing? They're, they're grumbling and rejecting what they have, heard about Jesus from others. They had notions of what the Messiah should be, right? That he, would be the, that he would be the son of Joseph and Mary and unconnected, unkingly, and sort of unimpressive was just not what they had been taught to believe. That is not what they were expecting. Isaiah 53 did not come to mind for these Jews, but it should have. Isaiah 53 didn't come to mind when they thought of their Messiah, that one who had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. They were not looking for a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. They were not expecting a Messiah who would be crushed and chastened and scourged, they expected their Messiah to be majestic and kingly, handsome, powerful, and that he would be the one that came to do the crushing. That he would be the one to chasten and scourge them. That he would be the one to make Israel great again. Instead, he was, he was Jesus was poor. Jesus was from Nazareth, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, he did not open his mouth. Right? This was certainly not a man from heaven. That's what they're saying in this. This is certainly not a man from heaven. This is a man from Nazareth. This, he's just a kid from Nazareth, right? This is the son of Joseph and Mary. And so these synagogue leaders were essentially accusing Jesus here of blasphemy. He says he's from heaven, but no, he's just like you and me. And they're saying it's blasphemy. He, from heaven? No. He, he's, he's just from Joseph's loins and, and Mary's womb. And so they think he's lying, that he's making some sort of extravagant claim here, but claims uh, that are so far off 
what they expect from their manufactured Messiah. They just don't comport. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven, they remark. How does he say this? He's a blasphemous boaster, is what they're saying. Now Jesus responds to their unbelief with words similar to those he spoke to the crowd in the previous passage that we looked at last time. Their unbelief, right? Jesus in the face of unbelief is never phased. Their unbelief does not throw him off. Um, if, If Jesus were just expecting Twitter followers, their unbelief would bother him, right? But he's not expecting Twitter followers. He's there actually to serve them and to do his Father's will and nothing less than that. Their unbelief does not throw him off and confuse him. Why? Because again, their faith does not depend on their own wills. It depends on the will of the one who's speaking to them. Their very faith, their very salvation, their lives depends on the one who's speaking to them. And it depends upon the will of the one who's speaking's father. And nowhere does Jesus make this more clear than in this passage, in the words that are coming up. This is the clearest statement of of God's election and predestination in all of Scripture. But Jesus, before he gets there, he begins with a rebuke. Do not grumble among yourselves. Stop murmuring. Stop complaining. Stop. Ryle unpacks that rebuke. He says, here's what Jesus meant. Your murmuring is not only what I am prepared to expect. I know what human nature is. I I am not moved by it. Think not that your unbelief will shake my confidence in my divine mission or prevent me saying what I do. I know that you cannot naturally understand such things that I am speaking of, and I will proceed to tell you why, but cease from these useless murmurings which neither surprise me nor stop me. Just, he's just like, just stop the murmuring. I mean, how puny is it for men who are completely dependent upon God to, to be there being saved by him and they're just murmuring about it? How puny and how pathetic is that? It's funny how we think murmuring and complaining will be productive. I mean, we must think it's productive because we spend so much time doing it. We do it all the time. Uh, We call it, (laughs) I don't know what you guys call it, but I call it um, venting. We got to vent, right? The pressure's going to build up and then we'll catch on fire or something, like a machine. We got to vent, we got to let off steam, we got to unburden ourselves, right? We got to be Scotty down in the engine room trying to, trying to figure something out and just, you know, the dilithium crystals are about to go up and he, he's got the solution. But the pressure's building. But, but the fact of the matter is, is complaining is never productive. Many of us have, have been in jobs where we and other employees continually complain about this or that part of the work. I mean, that's what labor unions exist for, right? But it was pure murmuring because we thought it was pure murmuring. It was innocent murmuring because we really never took those complaints to someone who had the power to change the situation. It really was just venting. It was, we didn't ever mean to take those actual complaints to somebody who could actually help us out of that situation. We're often like that. We just, we just, have, we just get a bee in our bonnet and just want to complain. Um, There are other alternatives to complaining and grumbling. You can be bold and take take your uh, actual difficulties to someone who can give you relief, to someone who has power to change the situation. You can do that, but that, you know, it's easier to complain. It's easier just to to vent. Um, That would actually take courage. And then, and then, the reason we don't go to somebody who has power to fix a situation is because um, all the buddies we complained with will then turn against us when we try to do something to change the situation. What are you, what did you, what? 
Or you could just do this. You could be thankful, the opposite of ungrateful murmuring. You could try to continually express your thanksgiving. Sounds boring. It sounds dopey and immature, but it's actually maturity and strength. It takes courage to be a, a thankful person in the midst of those who, who just want to grumble and complain. So after this rebuke, Jesus gets down to brass tacks to these Jewish synagogue officials who are unimpressed with Jesus, who are rejecting Jesus. Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. I mean, how can a person come to Jesus? How can a person come to Jesus? How will a person believe Jesus is the bread of heaven? How does one get past being just unimpressed with this book that speaks of Jesus and this person who is Jesus? How does one get past just um, approaching all these things as as one option among a thousand. How does, somebody, how, how does somebody come to Christ? Well, that answer has been, the answer to that question has been answered in a number, only a few ways actually in, in the history of the world. Right? Some say that it is the power of man to raise himself up to God, that it's in the power of man. It lies in his power. It's, it's his his problem. He's got to figure it out, and the journey and that figuring out is his pathway to God. Uh, that takes, uh, again, you, once you make that statement, it relates to a hundred different Christian doctrines. You have to start talking about man's nature. Man's nature, that person would say, is essentially good and not entirely sinful, so that all that man must do on his own perhaps is one thing, which is believe. The grace of God, the action of God, the initiation of God is not necessary. Belief is merely an act of the man's will without the influence of God's grace. God is waiting then for every man to make, to bend his will toward him. God is waiting for that choice to be made. And this was the heretical doctrine of Pelagius and Augustine tore Pelagius' doctrine apart. Put it down. Put it to rest. Right? This is why we love Augustine. This is why my son's middle name is Augustine. Or Augustine, as some of you say. I don't know. Mike. I'm God. Um, but contrary to Pelagius, Augustine taught that we can't attain righteousness by our own efforts, but are completely totally dependent on God's grace. We are, as it says in the book of Ephesians, dead in our sins. Dead. Not half dead. Not wounded. Not weak. Dead. And the important point here is this. Pelagius taught that sin was just an act of the will. Right? Sin was just each person's independent act of the will. Right? But Scripture teaches us that sin is not just actions, but that it is inherited corruption. We are dead in our sins as soon as we are conceived. We inherit Adam's sin. And so we're born in corruption. So it doesn't matter what you do or don't do. You're dead from the start. You're dead in your sins. We inherit corruption because we are connected by ordinary generation, ordinary birth to Adam. For as in Adam we all die. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 51. It's David nodding to original sin, the doctrine of original sin. Right when we start living, we are dead because of original sin. Our natures are corrupt right from con conception, and so our our 
natures being corrupt, we are unable to to will that which is good. Romans 3.12, there is none who does good. And if there's none who does good, then there's no one who has the power in himself to choose God, to choose the good, to do whatever works will raise you up into heaven. Pelagius and many other theologians before and after his time in the 4th and 5th century taught the same thing. Arminius, Jacobus Arminius leaned the same direction with some subtle differences. So what was the difference between Pelagius and Arminius? Pelagius taught that the first steps toward God are taken by the human will. The first steps has to be just the man independent of any influence. Right? Arminius taught that the first steps toward God are by his grace, but that that grace is resistible. Right? There's a prevenient grace that, that comes before, but that grace is resistible. The man has trump power against God's power. So there are differences here, and, and we don't want to lump them completely together. Arminius was not Pelagius or Pelagian. Pelagius front-loaded salvation with man's will. Arminius back-loaded salvation with man's will. One started with man's will, the other started with God's will, but gave man the final deciding power of who would come to him. And so Arminianism has also asserted that God's choice of man was premised on God's looking forward on man's choice. Right? In other words, God's will is essentially subordinate to the will of man if God must look forward to find out what man has chosen on his own. Now, does our verse allow either of those views, that of Pelagius or or Arminius? No, not at all. Not a single bit of it. This statement of Jesus, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, completely removes man's will from the occasion, the equation. Um, who comes to the Father? No one except those drawn by him. That's who comes to the Father. Calvin says, Christ declares that the doctrine of the gospel, though it is preached to all without exception, cannot be embraced by all, but that a new understanding and a new perception are requisite, and therefore that faith does not depend on the will of men, but that it is God who gives it. And what about this phrase, the Father drawing men? What does that mean that for the Father to draw a person to himself? Again, Calvin writes, as to the kind of drawing, it is not violent, so as to compel men by external force, but still it is a powerful impulse of the Holy Spirit which makes men willing who formerly were unwilling and reluctant. It is a false and profane assertion, therefore, that none are drawn but those who are willing to be drawn, as if man made himself obedient to God by his own efforts. Does this make sense? Does this make sense? Are you tired of me quoting Calvin? Stay with me, guys. I know you want to be entertained. We want to be entertained in preaching, but preaching is doctrine. It's doctrine. Doctrine should thrill you. I'm just boring, though. Soak it in and think about it and have your own meditations and pray while while your pastor is is doing his best. I'm a a weak man drawn up from the dust. Um, The drawing that the Father does is the powerful work of the Spirit in the heart. This is regeneration. This is the new birth that that John has already elaborated on three chapters previous to this in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. What did he tell to Nicodemus? What did he say to Nicodemus? You must be born again. When we're birthed, it's passive. You didn't participate in your birth your conception, your regeneration. 
right? That is passive. You must be born again. So this pull up your, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, self-made, egotistical American, um, that doesn't feel so good. This whole doctrine of God's got to do it. I can't do it myself. I'll show him. Right? You, you, we want to cry out, this is unfair. We want, we want, um, we want our own unbelief or our own belief to be the thing that, that puts God in our grasp, not God's drawing. We don't want that to be the reason for our salvation. Where would be our boast then? We wouldn't have anything to boast about if this is grace. And so, you know, we, we want to rely upon ourselves and call our own shots. We want God to be impressed with us and our works, but he is not. He is not impressed. You know why? Your, your works are pathetic. Our works are pathetic. Our works are nothing. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. And you have never done anything to impress. I mean, basically the only person you've ever impressed in your life is yourself. I mean, if you really think about it, because we're very often not impressed by other people. Unless they're playing the dough, bro. And then I'm impressed. Um, but you have never done anything. Think of God and his perfections. And you being dead and that whatever is not of faith is sin. Think of that. That's the context in which you've done all of your works before God. And he sits back and not only is he not impressed, but he is offended. He hates your filthy works. And yet we try to, we try to hoik up those filthy rags before him and say, God, this is why you should save me. You've never done anything to impress God. And now the good news that, that that won't stop God from saving you. <laughs> That's not going to stop God from saving you, right? Should he draw you, you will irresistibly follow. You don't have any plays. You don't have any trump cards. You don't have a draw four card. Not even that. Right? You don't have anything... And he can still draw you. That's Jesus here saying, I don't care about your unbelief. I know those who are mine here. I, I know. You can't throw me off. Right? Should he draw you, you will irresistibly follow. Your deadness does not keep him from being able to draw you to himself. It's not any hindrance at all. It's only a hindrance if you think you can impress him with it. Jesus is speaking with these Jews who are accusing him of blasphemy. They're getting under, uh, they're grumbling under their breath and he comes back to them with the cool and the glorious truth that some there, even though they were currently unbelieving and grumbling and complaining against him, would be drawn. They'd be drawn because his father had chosen them even before the foundation of the world. They are incapable in and of themselves. They are slaves of sin, but God is able. That's good news. That's good news. I mean, that's good news if you think, if you think man is sinful. But if somehow you've, you're so delusional, and I think this is the most delusional delusion in all of delusionhood, to think that somehow you're good, I think is the just most wicked lie that, I mean, not even the devil could, is, I mean, nothing is needed to convince us of our own sinfulness, right? Or may, maybe you just need to live five minutes in my thoughts. But I know it'd be the same with you. If I lived five minutes in your thoughts, I would find out your depravity. His spirit enters into the heart of those he has chosen and brings to life what was dead, what was against him, what was hostile, 
and animates what was motionless and invigorates that which was powerless. That's the work of the Spirit. Now, even, even if this doctrine were not so clearly taught by Christ that he must act if we are to believe, who in their right mind would give up their sins, which are the only thing they love before coming to Christ? Our sins are what we love before we, we are drawn. Who would give that up? Who would follow one who tells them to take up their cross and die daily? I mean, that doesn't exactly sound like a great life. Take up your cross and die daily. Die. Love your enemies. Who would follow one who tells them that they must hate even their own life? No one would. No one would follow Jesus if you're doing it on a, on a sort of a utilitarian scale. No one would follow Christ. It's not until our eyes are opened by God to see his glory and the riches of his glory, right? That, and the inheritance that he has laid up for us that we have any desire for anything other than our sin, Right? No one other than be the one who is born again would embrace suffering and self-denial and sacrifice and love for neighbor. No, before Christ we were satisfied with our sin and the only thing that could ever shake us loose from those sins is God removing the scales from our eyes and helping us to see things as they really are. Not as clouded by my sin. Man outside of Christ is quite happy with his own depravity. Even when, even were, were he able, man would not choose to follow Christ. Even were he able, he wouldn't do it. Um, Gollum will not give up his precious. And you wouldn't either. Whatever, whatever ring you have, whatever thing is yours that you won't give up. Um, you're satisfied with that which is destroying you. And then Ephesians 2 bursts in and puts forward a whole new world. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. By nature, children of wrath. Do you realize what he's saying there? By virtue of being what we are and how we were made, wrath rested on us. That's original sin. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. Made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's the gospel. You're not able to come to him and, and he may draw you. But our text, notice our text in John 6. The text does not say no man will come, but no man can come to him. No man can come to him. It's not that man is able but loves his sins and so stays away from Christ. The reality is this, he can't come to Christ. 
He does not have the tools to complete that job. He cannot come to Christ. God the Father must draw him to Christ because as we read in Ephesians 2, he's dead. A corpse is not only unwilling, but unable to do anything. Now, a bit of Spurgeon at this point. Spurgeon, preaching this passage, asks a question that may be occurring to some of you. Well, then, if I cannot save myself and cannot come to Christ, I must sit still and do nothing. That occur to you? He's, here's how he answers that. He says, if men do say so, on their own heads shall be their doom. We have very, very plainly told you that there are many things you can do. To be found continually in the house of God is in your power. To study the word of God with diligence is in your power. To renounce your outward sin, to forsake the vices in which you indulge, to make your life honest and sober and righteous is in your power. For this, you need no help from the Holy Spirit. All this you can do yourself, but to come to Christ truly is not in your power until you are renewed by the Holy Spirit. And so give yourselves to the means God uses to draw men to himself. And if God wills, you will be drawn. Right? Hold yourself off from the from the means God uses to draw men to himself, and you may prove your status, right? God uses these means in drawing. It's the word preached. It's battling the sin. It's, it's reading his word. We don't advocate passivity because of our doctrine. Because, dear brothers and sisters, passivity would be proud. Don't you see how passivity would be proud? Passivity is a man telling God that God better get to work doing things directly when God has told that man that his word preached is a hammer and a fire. And, and that being in the house of the Lord for worship gladdens the heart. And that looking on creation leads us to see his invisible attributes and provokes the heart to thanksgiving. And you're just going to sit back and say, mm, God, you better do it. You better draw me. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Get to work. God may be working. But know this, if, if your religion has no foundation other than your own will, if you're religion has no foundation other than your own will, you will not be saved. You won't be saved. The Father must draw you to Christ. Your church attendance, your kindness to people, your faithful tithing, your praying without ceasing are not your salvation. They are not. It's not until you say, I cannot come to Christ, and you stop trusting in those works you've been doing and you cry out to God saying draw me father in desperation right it's at that point where you're close to the kingdom of God so what are you saying about yourself as I preach today are you saying Lord draw me or are you saying one of these things I'm good Stupid religion, opiate of these fools. I won't give up my friends, not for this. I can't give up my pleasures, right? I, I, want, I want my beer. This is boring, right? Maybe you're saying to yourself, this service is boring. I may as well sleep through it. Can I get lunch now? Right? Or you're just saying, maybe you're saying, you know, rather than God draw me, you're saying, not yet. Or you're saying, this is all very mean. God is mean. What a big giant thug. 
God is? Why doesn't he just get over himself? You know, why, why not? Why, why doesn't he get over himself and save everybody? You know, why not? I deserve his grace, you might be saying. You know, if those are the thoughts that are going through your head, I, I fear for you. When the grace of God works in us, it produces humility. It produces thanksgiving. It produces an awe toward God. It leads, it leads first of all, to a recognition of our inability, right? Our total depravity, our complete dependence upon God. So, so repent of your pride. Give up thinking everything depends upon you. Give up thinking that because everything depends upon you, you must do works to impress God. Give that up. He's not impressed. The salvation that scripture talks about is much different than that. It is first by God's initiation, not your initiation. It is second by God's continued grace throughout your life, not by your excellence, which is all a delusion anyway. And it is third by God's gift of faith, not even by your own works. From beginning to end, salvation is of God and dead, noxious, recalcitrant sinners absolutely need it to be that way or no one will be saved. No one would be saved. Do you get that? Salvation being of God from beginning to end then, here's the good news, guarantees it because God does not fail. God doesn't fail. He is not thrown off by any matter because he determines the outcome of everything. He does not lie and is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. So when he draws to Christ, it will be and can never fail. He covenanted with his son before the very foundation of the world. How could it possibly fail? One final word on this text. Note that our main text today is all about Jesus, his father, and mankind. There is a Father in heaven who draws. There is an object in the Son to which he draws. And there are people who, by his sovereign choice, that get drawn. It is only those who are drawn to the Son, to the Son, who will be one day resurrected to life. Oh, all will be resurrected, right? All will be resurrected, but not all to life. Some will be resurrected to judgment, Many people believe that God is a generic God who indiscriminately welcomes everybody into heaven. You know, the, the, the grandfatherly, come on in, there's candy in my pocket. Well, that view is not a Christian view because that view is not taught in Scripture. It's just not found there. Right? Only those who have closed with Christ, only those who have come to Christ, only those who have been drawn to Christ and lived in such a way that he is much more than an afterthought, right? Only those persons will be resurrected to good things. Only those who have come to terms with this God-man, Jesus Christ, will be raised to spend their second life in a redeemed earth where there is no pain, no crying, no suffering, no losses. Later in John, a prayer is recorded for us. In that prayer, Jesus speaks to his Father. And note how he repeatedly speaks about his followers. Note the, the, the verbs in this passage. Fits right in with our passage this morning, taught about the Father's necessary work of drawing. This is John 17. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may, be glorif may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. 
I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. If you are in Christ, you were given to Christ by the Father and you will be kept until the day of resurrection by the Spirit. That's a great salvation. That's a guaranteed salvation. That salvation doesn't depend on whether you have an upset stomach from a bad burrito the day before. It depends upon or a habanero pepper. It depends on a God who cannot lie, who made a covenant with his son before the worlds even existed. Amen? Let us pray. Father, we glorify your name. We, we who are just dust stand in awe of your graciousness. Father, your mindfulness of us, that you turn your thoughts upon us. And not only that, Father, but you love us, your children. And you allow us to love because you first loved us. And you, Father, draw and don't cast away. Oh, Father, we thank you for your many mercies. Lord, I pray in the coming week that our hearts would sing with praise for your work, for your power, for your kindness in salvation. And for those who are wavering between the world and, and you, Father, I pray that they would give themselves with seriousness to the, to the means that you use to draw men to yourself, to the word. And that the Spirit would do this work in their hearts of making them alive so that they may read your word and believe it. So many people, Father, read your word. I, I for a long time, read your word and had, just didn't believe it. Just had no affinity for it, no understanding. My, my mind was, was blank as I read it. And then you broke in. And you drew, and the word was alive. And the word was so satisfying and good. Lord, I pray that that would be those who have heard this sermon, that they would contemplate these things, that they would seek you, and Father, that you would ultimately draw them. Work in our children's hearts. Father, work in the hearts of those who rule over us in this nation. Draw them to yourself. Father, renovate this culture through your drawing, through the work of regeneration. Father, that is a, that is a force that can't be resisted. That is an undefeatable power. And so, Father, we ask for your spirit to be unloosed that we would see conversions, that we would see a pride broken and just a sweet humility before you as people give thanks for their salvation given as a gift. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.